Well, young people have been deceived. But young people tonight, I want to tell you, every generation has been deceived. And especially this one, because the Bible says the devil is the great deceiver. That's his business to deceive you. And he's called in 2 Thessalonians, he's called the lie. Jesus said he's a liar and the father of lies. The devil's business is to deceive you. He tries to deceive you, and he does in every generation by saying that you can give your life to pleasure, you can give your life to the making of money, and you can let these things be your gods and that they will satisfy you and you'll find fulfillment in them. And after a while, the bubble is going to burst. And when you're young, he tells you that you can take the drug route and find mind expansion and peace of mind by taking drugs, and you soon find that you're in bondage, and you soon find that you've been deceived. You are being deceived. You're being brainwashed every day by the devil. And he uses every agency in the world, sometimes I fear even the church, to deceive you. And sometimes the church is guilty of keeping you from the real Jesus, the real Christ, who can forgive and satisfy and change and transform and who comes to love and to hold your hand and to be your friend. The devil wants to deceive you. He's called in the Bible the deceiver. You see, he deceived Eve in the Garden of Eden. He deceived her into believing that if she ate of that fruit that God had forbidden, that she would become like God. He said, you're really not going to die. There's no judgment. There's no hell. And she believed him. She believed a lie. So the very first generation of people that ever inhabited this planet were deceived. And man's fall from God began with a deception of the devil. And Satan is deceiving you in this generation. And after a while, you can have success. A lot in the news this week about uh, the passing of one of the last of the old saints, at least in my generation. And uh, earlier this week, Christy thought that uh, Ben should be exposed to the Reverend Graham. So she picked out a video at random, and we started to watch it. And when I saw this segment, I said, that's exactly what I need for this message. Yeah, God works in these ways. For a couple of reasons. One, of course, because this message is about deception, self-deception. Uh, and we'll get into that. But there's another reason. is because this might surprise you, but Billy Graham is not unlike you and me because he had feet of clay. He could have very well, and I think he did, overemphasize some things in his life that took him away at, from time to time from the more important things in life. Now, there are some very congratulatory and, and praiseworthy statements in the media, even liberal media, about Reverend Graham. But there are some 
bad things out there being said this week, some vile things. And I certainly don't want to jump on that pile. But I want you to understand that, this, that we're all in the same boat in this together. Um, now, uh, how's that for a title for a message? Say that a few times, quickly, okay? Uh, all right, and, and some of you are going to say, can't really? The third message on the same passage? Yeah. Yeah. As, and as, because these verses address our passage through life toward our final judgment by Christ, the whole issue of self-examination becomes really important. It's inevitable. You could say that as far as our position right now and our eternity, this is the most important and the most shocking statement in Scripture. As the Apostle John puts it, everyone who calls himself a child of God and therefore hopes in him purifies himself as he, the Father, is pure. And so this concept led in the past couple of messages to discussion about the importance of self-examination. Some faith traditions uh, at this time of year utilize an event or season called Lent, okay, which is to, to recognize the 40 days before the resurrection. Uh, and this year, the Lenten season started on Jan or February the 14th, and it's modeled after the 40 days that Christ spent in the desert. Now, the downside of that uh, more high church approach of Lent is really we ought to be examining ourselves all year long, okay? At least Lent reminds us that we should be examining ourselves. But I'm afraid that for many in that tradition, it becomes a season in which they say they're observing, but it's pretty much business as usual. Uh, now, in January, we opened this passage about self-deception, learning that one can believe all the right things, be enthusiastic, and do many wonderful things in the name of Christ, and yet not be saved. Believing, they are. Now, last time, we also talked about how the unconscious hypocrite is deceived in a number of possible ways, thinking that certain words will save you if you just utter them. Refusing to examine yourselves, your activities become your purpose in life, balancing sin with good works. Finally, simply failing to follow Christ as your first priority, your first love. Also, last time on this topic, I gave my opinion that as far as I know, most of you folks in here who attend regularly are saved. But be careful. I don't think Jesus cares much about my opinion. <laughs> about that. You know, in fact, nobody who calls themselves an elder or a minister or a pastor or a pope or any kind of a church leader can save you. And their opinion doesn't make a whole lot of difference. They might give you counsel, but they don't make that decision. 
Each one of us must make our own call and election sure. Whether you're sure of your salvation today, or you're not sure, or you know you're not saved today, this message has some application to you. Now, if you kind of tuned out the last couple of messages because you, you thought, I know I'm saved, so I don't need to listen to this, because the primary point of this passage that you saw there is those who think they're saved, but they're not. It's about the unsaved, just the deceived. Please listen today, because we're going to focus more on self-deception of Christians. We think, I think we've gotten that whole thing about how people can be deceived in thinking they're saved when they're not. But today we want to go on and understand that just because we're saved does not mean that Satan goes to sleep. You see, false teachers and Satan are teammates in this game. And I certainly hope no one thought the last two messages were inapplicable to you just because you are saved. So even if you have made your calling and election sure, please don't think you cannot be deceived by false teachers, by Satan, or by yourself. So first, we know, if we read our Bibles, that the Word tells us that Christ won the victory over sin and that God will not allow any temptation to overtake you that you are not able to resist. Yet, for some reason, we still sin. You know, Satan doesn't try to stop trying to deceive you just because you're saved. And if he cannot deceive you into thinking you're saved when you're not, he'll do the next best thing. He'll just make you an ineffective witness. He'll make you ineffective in your ministry, one way or another. So the saved among us today should not miss the lessons about self-deception while we're parked on this passage. You know, Paul makes it clear in Ephesians 6 that the battle continues after salvation when he exhorted all Christ followers in our daily lives as parents, as, as, as children, at work, in all places, and in all relationships. He said, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against the authorities against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Excuse me, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against all those things. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So the overall concept they want to get the grasp today in regard to self-deception, is that Satan can use everything in the Christian life to bring about self-deception. We're not saying today that Satan does use everything in your life, everything in the Christian realm. We're saying that he can use everything. So our key principle today is that things that we see as good and godly, in fact, are good and legitimate in and of themselves, may be the very things that deceive us about where we are in relation to our Father. By that, I mean we're going to examine some of the warning signs of self-deception, not only to one's salvation, 
but more pointedly to the saved person who may be drifting away from his or her first love. So, I'm about to mention some things that many know everybody here has experienced as a Christian, including me. These are valid, good parts of the Christian life. However, all of these activities, these interests can cause distraction from following Christ and worshiping our Father. I, I'm pretty sure I don't try to stomp on toes, but they seem to find their way under my foot here, okay? You're, I'm going to touch upon something that you're involved with or you're interested in. Idolatry is focusing on the things that take our attention away from the true God, that hinders our personal relationship with our Savior, or as Mike described just a couple of weeks ago, anything one seeks for comfort instead of God. So, I just want to again, before we try to identify these potential idols, we need to repeat some observations for clarity. First, nothing wrong or evil about any of the things that I'm going to mention. Uh, it is not the fact that we're interested in doing these things. It is our obsession and inordinate attention to these things that can bring self-deception. Now, you may be called into some specific activity or ministry and serve the Lord well and diligently, and that's all good. However, when our focus becomes the thing and not the Lord, that can create an, uh, an idol out of something that is otherwise good and worthwhile. Secondly, these signs of self-deception today apply to both deception of the lost and, as I mentioned before, believers who may be distracted in their relationship from Christ. Finally, you might just be surprised by some of the things we mentioned, okay, if you haven't looked at your worksheet. So let's get into these examples. Last month we mentioned that one can be self-deceived into thinking that doing good things and activities brings assurance of salvation. And for believers, that they can be drawn away from true worship by finding their purpose in going to Christian meetings. Again, nothing wrong. In fact, Christians are supposed to fellowship together. This is a meeting, right? But I, as a Christ follower, if I find my main interest in, if I find my life is really just looking forward to the next Christian meeting, even if for good and godly purposes, I may be in dangerous territory. Then there are the things that we believe are the results of our faith. You know, probably if you've been a Christian for long, you probably know somebody who has as their primary focus the emotional highs that occur during the Christian life. Many blessings are part and parcel of that life, like feelings, emotion, healing, specific guidance from the Holy Spirit. One may say these are the byproducts of our faith, but if all one talks about are these phenomena of faith, rather than their faith in and relationship with Christ, they may be drifting towards self-deception. This obsession with the blessings of faith can deceive one into thinking he or she is saved when that's not the case, or for the believer can distract one from genuine connection, their oneness with Jesus and following him. You know, false prophets, false teachers use these byproducts all the time to deceive the lost about the true nature of the Christian life. 
and they lead the saved into imbalanced and therefore ineffective witness. One area of teaching that seems to present a more common danger of overemphasis is that of end times and seasons. Again, this is a valid and essential part of biblical instruction. However, it is so deep, so confusing, and frankly, contested that some seemed to develop a compulsion to figure it all out. Now, understanding a difficult uh, portion of Scripture is good, yet if it consumes one to the point that all their focus and all their energy is putting, put into studying the prophecies in the books of Ezekiel and Daniel to the exclusion of all the other, there may be a problem there. That may take him or her away from a personal relationship with Christ and become an idol. Yeah, then there is interest in worldviews that align with biblical principles yet do not require a relationship with Christ. If one believes that he is a person, he supports traditional marriage, he's pro-life or advocates intelligent design or biblical creationism, and by those beliefs, therefore he becomes a Christian, he is clearly deceived. Now, I believe that a Christian would be hard-pressed to reconcile the opposite views, but believing in those things does not make you a Christian. And for the Christian to focus on worldviews can quite subtly take him or her away from a personal relationship with and dependence on Christ. Okay, what three words do you hear from this pulpit quite often? Read your Bible, of course. What you should not hear, though, is read your Bible to the exclusion of the world around you and the people with whom you interact. So please take what I'm saying here in context. Yes, please continue to read your Bible, study it, learn from it. Let it guide you in every facet of your lives, in your conduct, in your convictions, in your decisions, and how you respond to others. Do not let it distract you in any of the following ways. An inordinate focus on arguments for the defense of the faith. Apologetics do have an essential role in the Christian life, and therefore much of the teaching you hear in this, in this church will include those arguments. We have said that Christianity matches reality better than any other worldview, that science is the friend of our faith. Apologetics help us clear away the obstacles that people have to seeing the cross. However, if one is more interested in arguments for the faith than in the faith itself, he may not even be saved. The Christian who puts all his or her effort into the study of these arguments for the faith may neglect his or her personal sanctification and relationship with Christ. Diligent Bible study is another very good thing that can go sour. In a church where we emphasize reading and knowing your Bible, it kind of seems incongruous to say that, but if one approaches the Bible as academic or intellectual study rather than the book of life that speaks to us a word from God, we can lose our connection to its life-giving spirit.
Now, Christians often sympathize or even advocate for treating the Bible as literature uh, or some other subject in public high schools and universities. I would be very cautious about that strategy. You see, uh, I actually came to uh, my salvation as a, my first semester of my freshman year in college. And so I was motivated, and so my second semester I looked for, and I found a course called The Life and Teachings of Jesus, and I signed up at that place called the KU School of Religion. What could go wrong? All right, and so I'm in there, and uh, there's another young man a year or two older than me who was mentoring me at the time, and he was in the class as well. And we heard things like, you know, there's really no basis for believing these miracles, and there's really no reason that Mary had to be a virgin, you know, stuff like that. And when we got the results from the midterm back, I was astounded. I got an A. And my friend who was mentoring me, much more mature and more knowledgeable in the Bible, he got a C because I regurgitated what my notes said. He regurgitated what the Word said. So please understand that these things can be less than clear. It's, you know, it's, it's not just unconstitutional. It's silly to prohibit a student from bringing a Bible to class or talking about his or her faith when it's appropriate. But lowering the Bible to the level of mere literature just to get it in the classroom for discussion to be interpreted and taught by who knows who may lead young minds astray. Academic Bible study can distract from relationship and application of the word. And believe it or not, the same can be said for theology. When it is simply an intellectual pursuit. Like apologetics, there is no view of life that is comparable, and there's nothing more interesting than, the, than an intellectual pursuit uh, than Christian theology. This can become addictive to the point of that application of the word is an afterthought. Preachers can likewise become absorbed with points to teach. So they approach the word mechanically to come up with a, a well-sounding sermon rather than providing spiritual food that the word provides. Church historians have noticed a repeated sequence Following revival, there is usually a period when people rightly want to know more about God. So there's an emphasis on providing doctrine to these people. All good. But those periods are followed by, by periods of, of intellectual pride and knowledge, which leads us back to an, the need for another revival because of the spiritual dryness that that approach takes. The same thing can happen on an individual level. After a person experiences salvation, there's an excitement. The young Christian wants to know more about, he has a, a true hunger and thirst to know more about God. So Bible study starts up, that's, that's the focus. But if that earnest study is not balanced with real life and discipleship within the body of Christ, the result is that young Christian is not edified he or she is simply puffed up. Yeah. As we mentioned in uh, the Sunday school, 
anyone who gets into reading the Word of God should love their quiet time when we read, we meditate, we memorize, we talk to God without distraction from the things of the world. And if you're not experiencing that, you really cannot experience a close walk with God. But if you are doing that, yet it never goes any farther, it never leaves that closet, what good is it? Do you remember immediately after Jesus gave us instruction on his character, the Beatitudes? He tells his disciples what we, his, disi his disciples, are. We're salt to preserve, but if we lose our saltiness, we are good for nothing. He says we are to be light to illuminate his truth. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. All these things are warning signs placed where we would least expect to see them. I missed that one. Are you true to your school? Most of us would admit some level of loyalty or identification with certain institutions. That might be based upon how thankful you are that you got a diploma, or maybe you, you really were benefited by that education or whatever. But frankly, more commonly, it has to do with some connection with something like a sports team. Right? You know, everybody loves a winner. Do you know who is the, the most highly paid public employee in the state of Kansas? The guy who babysits these guys. <laughs> and the people that came after them. This was just some game about 10 years ago where something happened and they were excited. <laughs> yeah. In fact, in 39 states in this United States of America, the highest paid public employee is a football or basketball coach. That's how important this is. That's why universities and high schools spend so much money and time on sports because they know that consolidates everybody. That's something everybody is excited about. It draws them all together, and it draws money from the alums, right? It's funny how all that school finance money resulted in some really nice stadiums and tracks around in high schools. Now, If you identify with Christ, you're no different. We're, we're all the same. We're all social beings. And we can become attached to a particular organization, a ministry, a movement, and of course, the church. For some, the danger is that this loyalty can cause an assurance of salvation based upon their membership or their involvement in those activities, because these are all things that are within the realm of Christianity. And I think, if I'm doing these good things, I must be a Christian. 
Think of one who grows up in a church where there's little mention of the gospel, but she knows and likes all the people, the atmosphere, the fun activities. This is what she's always known. This is what she's always done on Sunday mornings and Wednesday, after, Wednesday evenings. The problem is that her focus, all of her time and her energies go into the organization and how it functions. And essentially what has happened is the organization has become a substitute for her relationship with Christ. Now, I know it sounds almost heretical to say that one's love for the church could be idolatry. But if that love is really for a club or society that I call my church, that is exactly the thrust of Jesus' words to those who did wonderful things in his name. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. The same applies for any movement, fellowship, or other type of organization. Being employed or even serving as a, as a volunteer in a ministry is a valid and a good thing. However, these activities, even devotion to these activities, is not the basis for salvation. And for those who are truly saved, this extreme interest and loyalty can distract from our relationship to God. It can get us off track and make us believe that the smooth functioning of the church, its activities and images, are the main goal. For some, a church name can become their identity, much like a social club or a sports team. In short, the church organization can become an idol. Now, I can't imagine some heads are spinning right now. Kent. Why do you guys get up there Sunday after Sunday and tell us how important the church is if it's an idol? Well, good question. Let me say a couple of things here. We have often, yes, we have taught that the church is very, very important. And the purposes of the church include fellowship and interdependence. And we're not taking any of that back. What we are saying here, though, is that when the church as an institution becomes the object of our service, when it becomes our favorite social club, at that point, it may for some become an idol, our replacement for our relationship with Christ. Yes, leaders and many others spend a lot of time discussing how to best run the church and get into practical issues of functioning. Mundane things like scheduling and bulletins and toilet paper must be addressed by somebody. And these are valid areas of serving. But all servants must be on guard to keep the main thing as the main thing. Now, let me return to a defense of the church in terms of priority. There's another facet to this whole thing. And that is that these different or organizations, without our realizing it, can start to compete with one another. Reality is that there are only so many hours in the day, a limited amount of time for all of our activities. Therefore, we will set priorities one way or another, intentionally or unintentionally. I'll either decide I'm going to put my time and energies into the church, or I'm going to put my time and energies into this ministry, or we'll just start doing those things. A decision and a priority will be set. As Christ followers, we should always look to God's word for guidance in everything, including 
our priorities. And you can't read the Bible without seeing that while family and work and government and all are addressed, the only organization whose sole function relates to faith is the church, the body of Christ. This should tell us something, again, that the primary vehicle for living the Christian life, even though it, it flows into those other areas, the primary vehicle is the church. In other words, this is a biblical priority. This is the landmark or the reference point from which we should navigate. Now, this may be a shock to some, but you can search as long as you want, and there are no mention in the Bible of para-church organizations. And this is the point at which some may become uncomfortable. But please listen to me, please. First, what is a para-church group? These are groups that focus on specific ministries. I don't have to name them because you're all familiar with many of them. And please understand, this is not a ministry to tear down para-church groups at all. If you know my history, that would be the height of hypocrisy. I believe these groups do vitally important work. And that's why we support them as a church and we call them in to explain what their ministries are so that you will know what the opportunities are that are available for you to serve in that way. Yes, we want you to love and serve one another within the church, but we also want you to be a light to the world outside. Rather, my purpose here today is to bring clarity and understanding to God-given priorities. We've got to understand the relationship of these ministries to the church in order to avoid the trap of self-deception. The word para means coming alongside of another. Therefore, a para-church group is, by definition, one that comes alongside what? The church. Okay? But for some, that group becomes their purpose in life. Okay? Where does that leave the church? I can't speak for all. I don't know everybody's heart. I don't know anybody's heart. But it could mean that the church is the place I go to on Sundays to keep up appearances. Because everybody knows that a Christian goes to church on Sunday. I minister throughout the week and I occupy a pew on Sunday when it doesn't conflict with my ministry. Now, taken as a whole, what's wrong with that picture? Uh, let's look at uh, this biblically. In Ephesians 5, Paul presents a metaphor that is described as difficult to understand. And throughout the message, he goes back and forth between husband and wife and Christ in the church. And there Paul says the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. And then he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands are to love their wives as their own body. Then he says, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then he clarifies the, the main point here. 
he admits, yes, this mystery is profound. It's hard to understand. But I'm saying that all this refers to Christ and the church. So let's take, take this analogy to its logical conclusion using a test. Let's say if you sense or see or hear your spouse say to you, I will be here for the times expected. I'll be in the home when you expect me to be here. But where I'm going to put my time and my energy, where my heart is, is in my work or in my hobby or in my ministry. As that spouse listening, how does that make you feel? That the person you are joined together with as one for life has made that the priority. Can you imagine when somebody finds their identity and their purpose primarily in their ministry outside the church, the smell of that in the nostrils of God. Now, I'm not saying here that you're lost or even self-deceived if you're not in church every Sunday. Certainly, if someone's got an ox in the ditch, it's fine to help them. Okay, if, you know, you need some time to regroup as a family or a couple and you take a Sunday off, that's okay. It's not so much where you are every Sunday, but where is your heart? And I'm not saying if you're involved with a ministry that your life is out of balance. In fact, I'm saying thank you for your service. However, I am saying that you've got to have proper priorities. If you're not connected primarily to the church first, your ministry is likely, has likely become a substitute for the church. And you may very well be self-deceived. I'll go even further. If you're serving in a ministry, yet the church is simply something you attend, that you're not engaged in as a functioning member of the body, contributing to its operation and the independence of its members and being fed by, you likely have no business trying to minister to somebody outside the church. Why? Because ministry and evangelism are part of discipleship. What kind of life example would you be setting? Do you really want those you are discipling to become Mere church attendees. If you're not being fed by the teaching of the church, by the discipling of the church, how can you disciple anybody else? As we tell our kids, you cannot give what you do not possess. Once again, this is neither a slam on the church nor parachurch groups. Rather, we must see the church in terms of relationship with Christ first. And then as the place where we go to grow, become stronger in our faith so that can, we can minister both within and without the church. The last danger sign 
that uh, we're going to talk about today is what I called in January cheap grace. Uh, and then we discovered how church leaders and teachers will sometimes not teach hard truth in order to keep people coming in the door. Then we mentioned that this failure results in forgiveness without repentance, discipleship without obedience, blessing without persecution, joy without righteousness. But cheap grace also comes when people compare God's grace with His law, and they find the former to be much more appealing than the latter. And so they focus only on grace. Of course, without grace, there is no doctrine of salvation. But this is another area in which both the saved and those who think they're saved but not can become confused and out of balance. One indication of cheap grace is presumptuous sin. By that we mean when a person confesses a sin, then immediately claims God's grace like a get-out-of-jail-free card. In essence, their sin appears to be premeditated. Uh, they just assume, they presume that they can sin and then just say, God forgives. If once I confess, no repentance necessary. In short, they have presumed upon the grace of God, and this attitude is extremely dangerous. A well-balanced and mature Christ follower will, yes, cling to God's grace, but be so convicted of his sin to the point that he cannot quite believe that God could forgive. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a young German pastor who was greatly troubled by how easily the German church gave in to Hitler in the 1930s. And his response was to write a book called The Cost of Discipleship, in which he chastised the church for adopting cheap grace, the notion that because grace is free, it does not matter how we live. So instead, he extolled the church to focus on how serious God takes sin, and while our salvation and our grace is free to us, they are extremely costly. That realization must actually cause us to not only set aside cowardice, but take up a stand for justice and our neighbors. In his case, that was the Jews. Bonhoeffer concluded that those in the church whose lives were not changed by grace to the point of action simply did not understand the gospel because they did not understand how costly grace is. And Bonhoeffer practiced what he preached. He was in America when World War II broke out, and against the advice of his friends, he returned to Nazi Germany to minister to the church and was hung by the Nazis just before the Allies conquered the nation. Speaking of historical figures, John Newton was a wretched slave trader in the mid-1700s who hit rock bottom before he found salvation in Christ. He knew that grace was costly, so costly that it caused him to call it amazing. 
and he wrote the words to the song that we so well know. Now, Newton was a mentor to a young man in Parliament named William Wilberforce. And Wilberforce was feeling like he wanted to get out of Parliament and go into the ministry. But Newton urged Wilberforce to stay in Parliament rather than go into the ministry so that he could fight against the slave trade, which Wilberforce did with all his might and, I might say, successfully. But during the battle... A woman came to Wilberforce and said, Mr. Wilberforce, what about the soul? And he turned to the woman and said, Madam, I had almost forgotten I had a soul. You see, Wilberforce was so caught up in this righteous battle that this woman noticed that he was in danger of sacrificing and neglecting his relationship with Jesus. As we mentioned, this is not so much today about the self-deception of the lost as it is about the saved. All of us can get caught up in attending church meetings and fascinated by end times teachings and signs and prophetic teaching, fighting the good fight against abortion and the redefinition of marriage, serving in a great church or ministry, even apologetic arguments, theology, and Bible study so that we know all the facts, all the connections, all the, all the analogies. But we've got to take great care that we can answer comfortably the question, yes, Kent, that is all good, but do you love him more? Do you obey him more? Are the Evidences of the fruit of the Spirit more evident in your life now than they were a year ago. Paul addresses the distractions that lead to self-deception in Philippians 3. In essence, he says, all things are secondary to the first priority, to know him, to be like him. Oh, Lord God, have mercy on our souls. If we've allowed any of these good and godly things to distract us from the most important thing, may we never allow the good things in life to crowd out the best and more important thing, you and you alone. In the precious name of Jesus, amen.